0: Welcome to another episode of Poetry Says, my name is Alice and this interview is a chat with Michelle Carl. You might know Michelle in her role as the editor of Mascara Literary Review, that's how I first came into contact with Michelle, through doing a book review for Mascara. But she's also a poet and a novelist, a writer who takes many forms and though she's usually based in Sydney, I got to talk with Michelle from where she's been staying and writing up in Northern Territory. So I was really, really grateful that we could get a working Skype connection and and get to have this discussion. I'm excited to share it with you because I feel that I'm reaching a point with the podcast where I'm feeling more ready to have conversations that delve into more, I guess, challenging territory, take on some of the bigger themes and I feel that this is a discussion that gently but insistently goes there in terms of talking about what it is to be a writer of colour in Australia right now and what are some of the the challenges, some of the positive things that are sustaining writers of colour and some of the challenges to the accepted literary canon and establishment, which really, really interests me. So we talk about Michelle's collections, Vishvarupa and The Herring Lass, and also what she's working on now. Towards the end, we actually get to hear a draft of a totally new poem that Michelle's been working on while she's been away from Sydney. And throughout it all, I think what we're talking about here is the importance of connection and conversation. And obviously that's something that a lot of us are really starved of right now. I know that I am. And just what connecting with one another through language and through interaction can do in terms of moving conversations forward. So I really hope you get a lot out of this one. And before we dive in, I just wanted to share this acknowledgement that Michelle sent me to read just before the beginning of the interview michelle writes i'd like to pay my respects to the aliwa gona gadigal and Yuin lands the elders past and present for their laws their language and culture and their care of the lands where i have been writing poems and healing thanks so much for listening enjoy
1: I'm in Aliyawa country and um, I'm working on um, just fiddling away at poems when I get the chance. Poems about colonisation and um, how just the impacts of um, the environment, on, obviously on people, on Aboriginal people, on, on animals and how that impacts on myself as someone walking through different countries um, yeah, so it's just I've spent some time this year down in Eden on the south coast and then up New South Wales. and then I've also been fortunate to be um, spend some time in kangaroo Island, which was a place where I was um, really connected to. Exploring just the biodiversity and the impacts after the fires on um, on different animal species and the kinds of observing the kinds of hierarchies, I suppose, mm. and the kinds of um, different um, struggles for land and how land is managed, and then the history of, of, of invasion and the history of of all of, of the traumas. Yeah, so that's kind of like I'm just trying to sort of feel my way through these things and I've mainly been an observer, yeah, an observer, an um, experiencer, um, experiencing the emotions, observing images as a poet, I suppose. Um, I think that's part of my process. That's one of the things that is... is is. striking thing for me I I tend to sort of like have images in my mind but I'll keep them in my mind and store them in my mind for a while before I kind of sit down to write a poem yeah taking photographs as well take I find that using my phone to take photographs is helpful because it's also a meditative process just to stop and you know to observe something and Mm -hmm. be in the moment Mm -hmm. so that's kind of been a relaxing and um centering as well yeah when i've when i've been going for walks and Mm -hmm. yeah so that's that's kind of the project that i've been working on
0: alice Mm -hmm. it's so exciting to talk to you at this point in the work and it's also really lovely to hear you know voices and sounds of wildlife from where you are um, it strikes me as you're describing the project, is there's some really clear through lines from your previous two collections of poetry, Vishwarupa and The Herring Lass, most obviously, Colonialism. And I was thinking as I was reading The Herring Lass, it's described, it's been described as cross cultural writing. And I was thinking about that phrase and thinking about the fact that there's obviously a lot more to writing cross-culturally than just, well, not just, but then including language and images that aren't stereotypically from the dominant culture, for example. And I was thinking about the fact that there necessarily is also resistance happening and there's a work of deciding how to include things. And I guess one thing that strikes me most about your poems is there's a complexity that feels really necessary because of the themes that you're working on. John Kinsella said about your work that it, it is unpicking the opacity of colonialism and trauma, as you mentioned. And I feel like there has to be a lot of background work like you're describing there. So it's it's just really interesting to hear about the that process, the collecting the looking, the feeling, all that work that goes into it. And, yeah, I guess I can really feel that behind your poems. Um, I'm not sure if there's so much a question there. But, yeah, I guess, well, what do you think of that phrase co- cross-cultural writing? Does that does that ring true for you or does it feel a little too simplistic?
1: It's interesting, isn't it, um, in the sense right now for me cross-cultural is having a new meaning as well with what's happening in the COVID time in the sense of like even you know, cross border crossing you know like um yeah it I think I think in in some ways it it, it has a limitation as a term doesn't it because it sort of almost implies that each culture is um to its own and um not interconnected whereas I feel as if You know, cultures themselves are actually connected in really complex ways and intricate ways. And um, history and sometimes literary genres um, have a tendency to sort of um, make culture discreet um, and say, you know, that it's not as imbricated as, as in fact the past has been. Um, with so many intersections for particularly for minority narratives. For example, I mean I'm talking about say like South Asian how do South Asian um, narratives and histories and poetries, how does how do they kind of imbricate into the myth of Australian uh, literary narratives, poetic narratives and, and the, the the canon and I think uh, this recently, been a book that looks that looks at that in much more complex ways it's called australian armor i think you know these are the these things tend to get um taken removed from from our cultural narratives and then they become quite so much more sort of um representative of a particular um, story and a particular typical uh, speaker for that story um, a particular place, a particular um, uh, subject, um, location um, and, and and context. And in, when in actual fact the way that people have moved across cultures and across countries is much more complex and the way that they have um, carried their stories with them as they moved and their poetries with them. So, um uh, a lot of my work is is cross-cultural in that way that because it is, I'm I'm looking particularly at how do you speak minority poetics or a minority narrative, whether it's in my poetry or my fiction. That's my central question, always coming back to that because I te- I think that, that that tends to sort of get um, overwritten by by national national narratives, you know, the national poetic mythos I suppose
0: yeah oh that's so interesting so, how would you describe that the national poetic mythos what what are some of the qualities that you think fit in the that dominant narrative in terms of poetry right now so one of the things that I think is that I mean I think it needs to be
1: said that the dominant narrative in Australian poetry has been informed largely by a kind of multiculturalism which at its centre has been European and that is something as a South Asian diaspora poet you know I'm an Australian South Asian um, that's something that yeah as you say that word resistance I think definitely that's something that um, I actively – there's an active activeness about resisting, isn't there? It's an active unpicking of history and going back. Um, so to get back to what you, your question, you know, what is, what is the, the dominant mythos? I mean, I'm not really – I don't come to poetry so much from the um, scholarly angle. I'm not um, an academic
0: um,
1: – I don't have that background, the academic background in, in poetry – and there is a particular, I think, there is a particular academic school of poetics in Australia, which is quite a strong group of um, people and a group of scholars, and you know, it's 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 quite a strong um, influence in the canon here. And I think that's great. I think that's really really awesome because it's important to have particular, you know, you know, it's important to be able to say how is Australian poetry different from other settler poetries and other post-colonial poetry such as Canadian poetry or um, you know North American poetry or English poetry or Irish poetry how does it differ and I think that's that's an important question but I think as well that there's been perhaps an over emphasis on the white settler aspect so what I look at in my work, as, as well as a critic when I do critical work is I'm, I'm looking at um, trying to um, recover to that picture or to that, that story. I'm trying to recover the, um, the non-white settler aspects. Um, and, and I'm interested in how that's in conversation with um, First Nations narratives and First Nations people and, and their stories and their language. I think that's really going to be an ongoing conversation and dialogue, but we have to start that dialogue somewhere, right? We have to make the first steps. There's so much ahead of us, but we have to, you know, make the beginnings. Alice, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. The last interview I did was with a poet who was working with a group in Western Sydney called Sweatshop Women, and we were talking, and it's a it's a collective specifically um, created by and for writers of colour. And what we were talking about was this this constant difficulty of the I guess the pressure that's put on that work, on the on that poetry to do certain work. And yeah, yeah, and, I, and I'm thinking <laughs> as you're describing that, I'm thinking, yeah, the the resistance, the unpicking creating the complexity, like adding the complexity into what poetry is. For us in Australia right now, that work is, um, yeah, it it falls to writers of colour where white writers don't do that work, you know, kind of sleepily forget to do that work. Um, And I'm, I'm thinking I've got this quote here that is from an essay of yours from 2016 that you wrote for Australian women writers and you said in that that you didn't think the forecast was all pessimistic and you write while countries like the US and UK have moved to the right against racial tolerance many women in Australia are beginning to speak and write with audacity and complexity about race. It's four years on from that I'm wondering if you still hold that optimism if you're more optimistic now or how you think about that.
1: I think that the global connections between what's going on here in Australia and um, and diasporas is is, is getting stronger. Um, and I'm, I'm thinking about, say, for example, the work that um, Eunice has been doing with Philippine, Philippine's poets um, in the diaspora. Um, and so I think there are those kinds of, connections and you know social media and technology obviously enables that but I you know what a a flowering of voices we've had in the last couple of years with women of colour and um, I think one contribution that um, I'm really glad to have played I could say this uh, um, uh, 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 an important part in in that in that project is the decibels 10, Decibel's De- 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 three project, which um, Vagabond Poets published, um, which I um, I edited um, with Demetra Harvey. And uh, it was um, three, uh, it was ten, 10 poets, three South Asian poets, um, three Filipino poets, um, a, a Taiwanese Australian poet, um, a South American Australian poet, and um, Demetra, and who's from the Greek diaspora, Australian Greek diaspora. I think that was really a real injection of um, radicalness in terms of challenging the, the white settler um, dominance. And it, 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 threw, it threw the gauntlet down to publishers to say, you know, you know pick up your game. Um, because there were many publishers who um, had not really been publishing poets that were migrants who were non from a non-European background. So that was like, you know, when the white Australia policy was dismantled, I think it's important to remember, I can't remember the exact year that it was dismantled, but I think it's really important to remember that that it didn't... The, the, the cultural um, ideologies of it was not dismantled and they fed into multiculturalism as we knew for a very, for, for a very long time. And I still believe that they're, they're still extremely strong in, in the very conservative areas of, of Australian literature and in, in, um, amongst, um, you know, the old guard, I suppose, that, that have defended this. You know, and it does come down when you unpack it, and you unpack it, and you unpack it. What was, what was that kind of multiculturalism about? What was um, the white Australia um, white Australia policy about? It does come back to racism, and that I think connects very strongly to how white Australians, white settlers, have treated Aboriginal people and Aboriginal culture. And it's it is it comes down to race. You know that it does come down to like notions of superiority and notions of um, paternalism. You know, we are here to provide culture for you. We are here to educate you. We are here to give you language. We are here to spoon feed you and um, to make you better, to cure your illnesses, because in some ways you're not good enough. Well, that's just not the case, you know, because there are – um, such um, powerful First Nations languages and culture, I, I, I see it and feel it here. Um, it is just thriving and and alive. And and also there are remedies and there are there are laws, and um, and the same applies also to um, other other cultures who have settled in Australia as well. So I think this whole notion of of like. Of, of white settler culture really needs to be challenged and it needs to also be directed towards um, scholarship because scholarship is actually an important element that, that feeds into the investment of how, you know, how literature is invested. Where are the sources, the economic sources that supply literature? What, what is their, what is their interest? And, um, and uh, because that ultimately has a huge impact in what literatures we produce we need to look at these things we don't we have to sort of be more questioning in asking these spaces to become more accountable that's what i'm trying to do i'm trying to develop a language for that and i'm trying to sort of like i'm t- i'm thinking about it you know it's a slow process but i start to see what i start to see is that a lot of the readings of the Australian poetic mythos are actually institutional readings. They are university readings, they are the scholarship readings, which tends to sort of like reshape the overall narrative and reshape the canon in, in really powerful ways because that's, it's receding um, a lot of um, resources you know, not just economic resources, other resources as well. You know, the resources of, of, um, of, of uh, critical resources and research resources and so forth. You know, it is too naive to think that it's just about it's it's just about knowledge and knowing and unpicking. We actually have to go to scholarship and we have to go to institutions and we have to actually go beyond just. You know just publishing our work and just speaking our work. I think we have to go to these 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 spaces and actually kind of demand that they become more accountable.
0: yeah, and it really is starting to feel like institutions are having their feet held to the fire pretty regularly now. Um, and it sounds yeah. like in, <laughs> it, in what you're saying, it sounds like there's a there's both optimism and a sense that we can't, we definitely can't stop working. We can't relax at all, because, as you say, these institutions. Well, what I, what I understand from what you're what you're describing, and what I feel is that when an institution has a certain momentum, in terms of and and just a certain comfortableness in terms of how it operates, it's pretty easy for it to pay lip service to a certain minority group and then go back to what it was doing before. So, yeah, it feels like holding those institutions, publishers, universities, groups with power accountable is something that just it's happening all the time, it seems like.
1: Yeah, and, I mean, it's like it's, it's the way that it works is that uh, research will happen around particular writers, which then... Um, will influence what writers are being studied and which will then influence um, the publishing trends you know um, and that is the pressure that is very powerful on publishing and therefore on storytelling So we we can't under under underestimate uh, the amount of influence that, um institutional readings and institutional interpretations we have to we have to try and challenge those that's that's the work i, I do and I, I don't know if i'm going to get a lot of payback for saying this stuff in the interview but i reckon they know already that they're, they're you know they already have singled me out so you know like i mean it's it's a one-way it's a one-way journey you know you start to take this journey and 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 you just keep going and you get stronger and you have allies and um and you also it's not I mean I I think it's a dialogue and um I think one of the things I love about language is that when you have a language for something it it actually um diffuses the rawer emotions the anger or the just um uh, I don't know like just the blame or whatever like Sure, there's a lot. There's a lot of um, frustration. And there's a lot of injustice. But I think having a language diffuses the the um emotional energy of injustice. And that's what I like about language. If you can have the language to talk about these things, that's the, to me, that is the key. Unless you have that language to talk about these things, that is the key to bringing about change because that is the thing that will ultimately, Um, to fuse the situation enough for people to stop sort of like having their polarised opinions about things and feeling that they're, um, you know, on opposite sides. Um, In fact, you know, language is a communication. It's a connector. It's, it's, that's the power of language, right? So it's up to us to kind of use that language in, in, and also to be strategic that's an important thing. We have to be strategic, and we can be strategic in, in very, um, in very fair ways. You know, I think that, I think those skills are things that you keep honing, and um, I think it's it, it is starting to um, feel like it's an energy and a power that is connecting many of us who are on the fringe. And, um, and also starting to become in dialogue with um, other industry people, like recently, um, for example, there was like a panel um, with some of the journals and like a conversation with some of the journals. And as you know, you probably know that, I, you know, I, I'm the edit, I've edited Mascara. And, um, you know, that was really great because I think we need to sort of, we need to see that we're actually coming, we have a lot in common. And and how can we strengthen what we have in common to bring about change? And um, you know, in ways that ways that are positive. <laughs> yeah. I guess. Yeah.
0: Yeah, because it is. Yeah, as you say, if there's room for dialogue, there's room for connection, and if if there's if, if there's communication happening, and there's listening happening, there's just a higher chance of finding some common ground. I wanted but, to ask. Oh, sorry. Go ahead.
1: Um, I was just going to say that you know we we mustn't underestimate still you know the brutality of of what racism is and the brutality um, you know that the the actual power dynamic where which I see and I've witnessed in different ways, um, which comes down to you know often enormous amounts of resources and power being misused and uh, we mustn't underestimate that because, you know, although it sounds like it's all positive that we're moving in positive directions, you know, um, at the same time what we're, you know, that there are enormous challenges to, to, um, to us all, It's people of colour, I think, writers of colour, there are enormous challenges. And, and, and um, I think it's going to be an ongoing thing but I'm glad to be part of it like I just feel like this is who you are like it's you know as a writer how can you dissociate from the issues that are real that affect us not just you know our our stories but also our lives in really real ways we've all felt it we've all felt the trauma I'd say most most of us you know, you, you can't become a writer and you know publish books Um, without suffering from some of these traumas you know like from these injustices they do actually have have a real effect on people's lives in um and so uh you know i guess i feel that but yeah yeah, i try to bring these things into my poems. at the moment i'm feeling like that um the covid 19 pandemic has had an enormous impact obviously and that's Definitely something that's coming into into to what I'm writing about as well. Some some of the poems, you know, they do reflect on, or um, well, they do seem to be absorbing um, the conditions. You know, the conditions that COVID nineteen is kind of like placed on us. Yeah. So um, obviously, this is a huge, hugest challenge that we're all facing now as we're kind of going more towards virtual. Um, lives you know the the increased domination of technology on our lives for me it's very hard like I just do prefer to be in more living in a more nature connected way as a writer it's like it's you that's that's the a bit much more optimal space for me to be
0: yeah, I couldn't agree more. I I so wish we were having this conversation in a room together in Sydney or somewhere, you know. <laughs> um yeah, it's it's and it's really hard to I find to write right now without as you say those conditions seeping into what you're writing. Yeah, and and I really appreciate that acknowledgement that you're making of just how brutal and and hard it can be to to write and publish as a writer of color and something that, that that does come through in your poems is that the writing of poetry is not always a happy thing there's a line in one of the poems from the herring lass that i really love called castrato where you say poetry raids every layer of self-respect so i can no longer read newsprint let alone the opening sentence of my tenth surplus draft and uh also in a poem called Mumbai by Night, you say time is a fixed currency without counterfeit, so brief it leaves me cheating myself with words. And, yeah, I guess I just really appreciate the acknowledgement in your work that, like, writing, sometimes we hate poetry. Sometimes poetry is just, like, I don't know, It those lines expressed my own relationship with poetry which is not always positive it's not always I love poems I love writing poems <laughs> everything's happy you know it's like sometimes <laughs> it's hard and you just kind of hate it yeah and I just really appreciated yeah, those you
1: do, don't you it's like and yeah you, you do you can spend like all this time right and sitting in a page and not really knowing it's not really getting there it's not it's kind of really stuck so it's you know sort of and 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 you then you're thinking what am i doing what am i doing with my life <laughs> <laughs> sitting here you know i could be doing so many things i could be yeah i think that the, the writing life is so hard that way because um that the time that we're spending writing is a loss each each moment is a loss that we could be actually living our lives and um in my personal life which i don't talk about but I would say this, that oh, a lot of regrets, so many regrets, but, you know, you can't change them. And they're deep regrets, you know. They're deep, They'll that have scarred me, like, um, in my closest relationships. Um, uh, but I, it's, a, it's a funny thing, like, when I say regrets, it's like I'm not the sort of person to regret what's happened in a way, but... Um, i would say more like this if i had my time again you know i would i would i would give back all the books totally i would give all the books back for some of the things i've lost um and that's i know that sounds a bit cliched and a bit dramatic but it is it's a really tough gig and and i think um at the same time i also appreciate that it is what it is you know you can't it's just life goes so quickly that it's just, it's too hard to say, you know, to regret as well, if that makes sense. Like I don't I don't sort of have that feeling but, yeah, yeah it's definitely stuff you have to give up, and, um, which is, I think the thing about it is that it happens in ways which it happens afterwards that you realise, you know, because you're so engrossed and because it takes so much from you. Um, and I think it's not just for writers of colour. I think it's it's any kind of – any writer, really. It's a huge thing to write a book of poetry. It takes so much out of you or a novel, for that matter. You know, it's just um, – but I guess what I, I – I suppose I feel like it's a place – language is a place where I feel like you can do things which – Maybe you can't do in your life. Sometimes I felt that way. You know, like I, I like the idea about language too. That it, although language can harm, it it um, can it it you know in the in the um, in the mould of a poem, in the shape of a poem or a story, um, it, it doesn't. It's, it's kind of in a way ethically neutral in some ways and I like that because I think there's so few relationships that we have in the world that are ethically neutral so that's one of the huge appeals to me about about the writing life that's a bit of a digression from poetry I suppose um,
0: no no definitely not necessarily no um it kind of leads me to a question I wanted to ask about form reading your books I noticed that while you do use a huge range of forms, the tercet seems to be kind of a natural way for you to think in your poems, Mm -hmm. uh, even though there are really notable examples of you breaking away from that. But I wonder about the ethics of form. Like are there certain forms that um, I don't really know how to formulate this question, but like uh, is there something about poetry as a form that, is more that allows for thought that is that can't happen otherwise I wonder and is there something about the Tercet in particular that gives um, space for a kind of thinking that can't happen in other ways?
1: Yeah such a good question Um, and I really appreciate the, the the observation about the Tercet. I'm not sure why I I've used that form. Um, I'm really not sure. Uh, I, I think that poetry is, as, as a writer who's written prose, I think that poetry is completely different. It's, it's a kind of a language that's, that sort of speaks to you, right? So when I'm writing a poem, I need to be able to hear that voice that comes outside of me. Whereas when I'm writing prose, it's much more from me pushing it out, in a way. Yeah, definitely. Like prose writing is me putting the story out. Whereas poetry, I have to hear the, I have to hear it, and I have to hear the music of it. And that's where the shape comes in because you're playing with something or you're you're, you're forming something that's like um, already already there in a way, and you're just like. You know, turning it into the page, and um, taking that language and moving it with your with your thoughts and with your with your um, with your words. Um, so, and and that's the beautiful thing about poetry that makes it super special. Like it's it is it is the language that, it, to me, it is. I know this is probably a bit of an old-fashioned way <laughs> thinking about poetry, but it is. For me, it's, you know, the meditative, um, the, the kind of the, the, the language of, of more stillness, of going maybe, you know, in a way you're going into a, you, you go into another realm sometimes with it, you know, you dip in and out of, of this realm, that realm. So, yeah, I think in that sense, I think form in some way is kind of is maybe even essential poetry in some way but I, I, I'm not a formalist I don't like measure the um, um, the, the, the beats in my poems or the, the syllables and um, I don't have that uniformity um, I have written some sonnets uh, I've written some contemporary sonnets um, I liked um, particularly gig Ryan's work in contemporary sonnets And um, also, very much, I love L.K. Holt's work in Contemporary Sonnets. That book of hers, Patience Mutiny, I think that's a remarkable book. Um, uh, And so, yeah, I I like to sort of um, sometimes work with contemporary forms, contemporary sonnet, or the the other one I like to use is the um, more like it's just uh, almost like a, a news bulletin type, you know that sort of like basically text. I quite like that. I like, I like the um, the of it, and just um, the there's a certain honesty about it. I think sometimes, but you can also get trapped in that in wanting to keep the shape. I mean, definitely you can you can get trapped in form. So you have to be. I try to, to, to sort of. To keep things, um, the voice, the the, the the voice of the line, it 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 shouldn't be too bound. I think to to the form, it should it should each line should be a strong line that's not kind of compromised because you want to sustain a particular form that looks good on the page. Yeah, so um, it's about kind of finding out what your strengths are as a poet and, um, and, and also, you know, we have moments as poets where it's working really well and times also, times in our poetic career, I think, when it's working really well and there are other times when, when we need to give ourselves more time maybe because, you know, you, you don't want to exhaust the tropes as well.
0: Yeah, that slowness really comes through. I mean, these two books that I have here, Vishwarupa and the Herring Lass, they they feel as if they're representative of just just many many months of deep thinking, research, drafting, redrafting, editing. Yeah, but as you say, they don't. They definitely don't feel subservient to any form or any pattern necessarily either. Yeah, just so much energy, so much time and energy. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Um yeah, in some ways, like I sort of you ask yourself the question like should i should I write something that's not as like um you know maybe maybe sort of a freer, a freer use of my voice um and i and and when you when you're reading some of the poetry that that that's being published recently as well um yeah, there's, there's a great appeal to the the strong, free um, rhetoric that addresses some of the issues we've, we've talked about, Alice. So, yeah. um, you know, like, yeah, and, and especially when we're in a time, a contemporary time and a contemporary moment that is is um, so problematic and so fraught for people and our lives are really, we're probably facing one of the greatest challenges to our lives um that we have known um so i think it, it calls for something it calls for something that's direct and strong and so that so that's something that 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 i'm thinking about as well like i yeah i think i though i do think i'm i don't feel that i'm in a rush um with poetry uh because i feel like i've already done a lot and um uh well, I, I feel like I've done a lot in the sense that, for myself anyway, not maybe for other people, but for myself, I feel as if I've covered a lot for the things that I wanted to approach the subjects. In Vishwarupa, I was looking at um, what was it like to, what, what might it have been like for um, someone who has who has been sort of I suppose, like a half-caste, you know, like um, uh, how I realised how, what would it be like to connect with their, the, langu- the language and the culture that they've been disconnected from because of colonialism? So that was my reach. It was to reach back into history and time and, and to sort of imagine these myths connecting to what my life is as a diasporic, South Asian Australian, uh, who speaks English and who who was brought up as a Christian and um, and who was brought up in Western countries. So it was that was that was the reach. And then I wanted to, in the herring lass, I wanted to um, look at um, human and and, and uh, animal migrations from northern perspectives as as well. Come, some some coming to Australia, sort of northern. Northern Hemisphere, antipodean connections, because I did spend time living in the Northern Hemisphere, and I, I wanted, yeah, I wanted to sort of like, I wanted to, I thought that these kinds of narratives would also be relevant for other Australians who'd, who, um, who you know, who, who've migrated from the Northern Hemisphere or have the history of that migration. So some of those poems did engage with that. So those two books did cover um, many things that I wanted to sort of write about, I suppose, in some ways. Um, so I, I don't feel particularly in a hurry with with um, the work that I'm working on. And, yeah, just sort of feeling just grateful for whatever um, life can offer to to connect poetically and whatever. Feeling humbled as well, that sort of there are so many strong, powerful poets out there, and feeling humbled to be part of that community really, and grateful for that those connections. I've made some wonderful um, connections and friendships, and um, conversate had lots of great conversations. I mean, you mentioned um, sweatshop. You know, it's it's been lovely to, to sort of, you know, meet so many young um, writers and, yeah, I've also felt grateful to be part of um, sort of helping some of the writers as well. That's been a, prov- a great privilege for me and it's wonderful to see them going on and doing more work. That's fantastic. So, you know, in Jezebel's three in that series there were some wonderful poets in that series. Jesse too comes to mind and, um, Samudu Samara who has got a collection of poems coming out next year with Cordite of Demetra, who I've mentioned, um, and Ariel Riveros. He's a really fantastic, um, poet who writes about mental illness a lot in really interesting ways and really powerful ways. So, um, yeah, it was just really fantastic, and um, also Nisbar, Nisba, um, uh who is a fantastic poet as well. So it, I, it's been a great privilege to watch the writers and to be, you know, to feel that I've contributed in a very small way to um, to that to that flourishing. Is you know, it's great. So it's pretty awesome, and I think more to come
0: yeah bring it on you know <laughs> bring it on absolutely yeah 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 like you say yeah. it does it does feel like a moment of flowering which is really wonderful um I've kept you for over an hour now was there anything else that you wanted to share that's on your mind poetry wise or otherwise before we wrap up
1: oh, i I feel. Um, I feel we've covered quite a lot, right, Alice? Like <laughs> definitely. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah no, it's been so awesome to talk to you, and um, so so appreciate you reading my work and and um, dialoguing with me about my process and what I've been up to lately. It's really awesome, and so
0: grateful for that.
1: That's
0: yeah, oh, been, been, a, been a, a pleasure for, for me awesome. as well. Yeah. Um, maybe, I don't know if you have your poems to hand or if you'd like to take us out with a poem. Would that be
1: yeah, possible? Yeah, I'd love yeah. to. I'd have to um, let me read you. I want to read you this one. It's called Orquery, Vigon Bay. It's just a draft at the moment, so bear with me. I remember standing on the dunes, night loosening, sunset's crimson ribbon stretched along the dark spine of hills, wallabies darting hurriedly through the reserve, the phone ringing, a crunch of tyres over gravel, the high beam of a four-wheel drive, a commuter or a surfer in his ute passing, while in another time zone a man on his way home from work pulls over by the roadside. I know his song, the voice is lustrous as abalone shell, words neat as haystacks could tumble down to crush my bones a clavicle or collarbone a circle of wrist the darkness penetrates we laugh carelessly under a panoply of, with the stars on parole each of us guilty of negligible crimes yesterday i drove back from pennishaw dodging possums echidnas tamar wallabies i almost hit the belk of a kangaroo tannin skinned strapping she hopped slowly awkwardly off the bitumen my front wheel ran over a parcel softer than timber and I screamed so many animals die this way someone writes a book of recipes for roadkill the forecast spells rain and lightning it is almost winter months since the fires burned deep scars yet the absurdity of bonfires ablaze on the hills the farmers drunk landholders slashing the fields. How to settle the value of a stray sheep in the museum of massacres. Neighbor, lover, I witness the force majeure with seaweed in my teeth. The man drugs me with his delicate tongue, and I rise rebelliously.